We are broadcasting from Palm Springs in the California desert tonight. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio. It is nighttime in the desert, as you can see by looking around. And on this night, the desert in question is here in Palm Springs at the Ace Hotel with the mountains rising up behind us. And please silence your phone devices as we are recording. The best way to silence a phone is to throw it in that pool. Thank you for being here on this autumn night. Palm trees, a campfire rang outside, a hint of what it was like here a century ago. A hundred years ago, when the few people who lived here lived in the canyons. They lived in Palm Canyon, they lived in Chino Canyon. Where you had shade, where you had fresh water, where you could grow some beans and plants, hot springs for winter soaking, really a perfect oasis. For centuries, this has been the home to the Cahila people, the Agua Caliente tribe. Today, the tribe owns 50 square miles of Palm Springs in the Coachella Valley, all the way down to Rancho Mirage. The land beneath 20,000 homes and businesses here is still tribal land, and you pay a lease to the tribe. Anglo-Americans showed up around the gold rush, as usual, and by the early 1900s, there were health resorts. There were health resorts catering to the lungers. The lungers who suffered various diseases, tuberculosis primarily among them, they came to the desert for the dry air, for the mineral baths. In the time before the antibiotic cure was discovered for tuberculosis in 1949, But in those early days, there was another kind of Anglo-American resident, a new kind of maniac, a person we call a desert rat. The desert rats loved this landscape. They loved the arid land. They loved the brilliant colors. They loved the extremes that we call the Colorado Desert, uh, the part of the Sonoran Desert that is west of the Colorado River. These desert rats were artists and philosophers, misfits, philosophers, outlaws, generally not very fond of busy cities and the busy work of American life. They were talented painters, they were writers, and they also included a strange character named Edmund Yeager, the man we call Dr. Yeager, a desert biologist, a pioneering desert biologist. He lived in a wooden shack in Palm Canyon. He built it himself and with a little help from his friends and he traveled these desert lands his whole adult life making great discoveries. There weren't a lot of scientists looking at the flora and fauna of the desert before Dr. Yeager. His discovery, his best known discovery, was of the first known hibernating bird, the common poorwill, which he found sleeping in nooks along the rock walls east of here, a place protected by the Nature Conservancy and known as the Edmund Yeager Nature Sanctuary in the Chuckwalla Mountains. You can visit, you should visit in the cold months. It's about an hour east of here on Interstate 10. Take the exit just before Desert Center to Dirt Road and say hello to Dr. Yeager while you were visiting because his ashes were put there, spread among his nature preserve after his death in 1983. In time, the health resorts became 
country clubs, tennis clubs, golf courses, and the whole place became so fancy that American presidents made a habit of vacationing here. They liked to be here because it was far from the gloomy cold of Washington, D.C., the grim winters of the Northeast Coast. Dwight Eisenhower first landed in Palm Springs in February 1954, and he was here to play golf. There were just two 18-hole golf courses here at the time, and Ike played both because he loved golf, as presidents generally do, regardless of their other qualities. On the night of February 20th, something happened, something still unexplained. Eisenhower disappeared from Smoke Tree Ranch. This was the elaborate estate owned by Paul Helms of Helms Bakery in Los Angeles. The White House press corps could not get a straight story. They did not know what happened to Ike. In the confusion that followed, the Associated Press put out a 10-bell bulletin announcing that President Eisenhower was dead. Quote, President Eisenhower died tonight of a heart attack in Palm Springs. That's what the AP reported. Two minutes later, they retracted the bulletin. They said it was a mistake. A lack of information had brought on an international panic. A well-known local dentist, Francis A. Purcell, was later credited with repairing a broken crown on the president's front left incisor. That is tooth number 11 in dental lingo. The president, according to the White House, had broken the crown while eating fried chicken, and he was hurried away for a secret dental visit. But Dr. Purcell, later a founding board member of the College of the Desert here, had no records of the procedure. He could not remember any details about it, although both he and his wife, Mrs. Purcell, could remember everything about the steak fry they attended the next night and where Dr. Purcell was thanked for perhaps fixing Eisenhower's crown or perhaps just taking credit for something that was never done. A strange story emerged in the years after Ike's 1954 holiday here, a story that fits in well with the Cold War UFO panic. It had gripped America in the 1950s. Over several weeks in July of 1952, unknown aerial craft had appeared over National Airport in the U.S. Capitol, both visually and on radar screens at Washington National and at Andrews Air Force Base. They were seen by pilots and flight crews from aircraft and from the ground. And when the fighters were scrambled, the objects vanished from the sky, only to return when the fighter jets landed for refueling. General Eisenhower himself had seen a brilliant blue-white craft appear over the USS Franklin D. Roosevelt, the first American ship armed with nuclear weapons. It was that same year, 1952. It was the year before he was elected or he became president. He was on deck in the night in his pajamas and his robe. He was there to get coffee and smoke cigarettes. When he joined a group of sailors watching the UFO hovering 100 feet off the ocean, just off the ship, he left the sailors with instructions to not talk about this and said he would look into it all of which adds texture to the persistent story of Ike's real emergency the night of February 20th when he was vacationing here in the Coachella Valley. A late night visit 
to Muroc Air Force Base for a diplomatic meeting with representatives of an alien civilization. Muroc is now known as Edwards Air Force Base. It's home of the Right Stuff pilots. It's Dry Lake Runway, where the space shuttle often landed, where the fastest and most secret American aircraft were tested and flown. But from the beginning there, other aircraft had appeared, mysterious things that would chase pilots through the night sky or hover brazenly over the main runway. Brilliant lights flashing every color, only to rapidly, straight up from two or three hundred feet over the runway to forty to fifty thousand feet. This maneuver they saved for when the fighter jets were scrambled. In 1954, the story goes, the leader of the free world was taken by helicopter to the Mojave Desert Air Base for a brief and symbolically important meeting with the space aliens. A diplomatic meeting with an intelligence that had baffled the armies of the world for centuries, but especially since World War II, and especially since the people of Earth began using nuclear weapons. The story emerged just seven weeks later when a letter was sent to California's best-known UFO researcher, the director of the Borderland Sciences Research Association in San Diego. Dignitaries were reportedly brought to the desert base, including the Los Angeles Archbishop James McIntyre and the first chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, Edward Norse. There they saw, along with the president, recovered craft, recovered alien craft, five different shapes and sizes. On this single winter's night on the California desert in 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower is reported to have died of a heart attack, sought secret treatment for dental work, broken on a bite of chicken, to have recovered, to have seen recovered UFOs in the Mojave, and to have made diplomatic contact with a race of tall space aliens known then and now as the Nordics. The founder of Borderland Sciences Research Organization, was Mead Lane, apparently a relative of mine. I never met him. I'd never heard of him. This is his book that he published, Flying Saucers at 1954 Edwards Air Force Base. Well, you may have no doubt noticed the strange structure sharing the stage with us here tonight. And it's time that we address this outrage and we have to introduce the character who brought this telephone booth all the way from Arizona, from the town of Sholo in the weird American desert, owner-operator of the iconic deuceofclubs.com. He's in every issue of the Desert Oracle. And now he's here. Please welcome Doc Daniels. Hello, Ken. Well, hello there, Doc. It's good to see you. Um, you know, this is a call-in radio show, more or less. Yeah, I'm wondering and, how you can see me. Yeah, well, we, we've got... We, it's like a video phone. Okay. So, look, uh, I hope you're comfortable in there. What, what, what in God's name are you wearing? I'm not sure how you know what I'm wearing, Ken, but uh, we came directly from a Halloween party. Soon, uh-huh. As soon as we got your telegram. Long drive? Yeah, you know how it is in the desert. You get a telegram and you... Is this the world-famous Mojave phone booth? Well, unfortunately, no. The world-famous Mojave phone booth was destroyed by the NPS. 
National Park Service. Uh, this is a replica booth that was built for a movie called, oddly enough, Mojave Phone Booth. So this is a cheap Hollywood prop. It's a cheap Hollywood. Well, I don't know how cheap it was. It's built with hinges. It's held together with hinges. Well, that's solid. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, tell us how you learned about the mysterious booth, how all of that went down. You don't have to... I know you've told the story many times, but... Uh, I, you don't belabor the point. Give, give, give us a three-sentence version, if you'd be so kind. I read about the Mavi phone booth and a zine, which were homemade zines by my favorite band, Girl Trouble, out of Tacoma, Washington. And there was a letter to the editor that mentioned this phone booth that was allegedly in the middle of the desert and operating. And so I immediately resolved that I would call it at least once every day and record the calls. And I just didn't think anybody would ever answer. I just thought I would like to hear the phone ring in the Mojave Desert. And presumably, eventually, somebody answered? (laughs) After only about 30 days, somebody answered. 30 days. I believe you had a post-it note about this. I did have a post-it note. It reminded me to call the phone booth every day. But I didn't need it because I I was doing it all the time. I would do it at work mostly, you know. Instead of, like, tapping your pencil, I would just dial the number and listen to that number. And imagine that I was not at work. I was in the desert. Well, what, what was the number? 760-933-9969. So you caused a international outrage, as According I remember. According to certain government agents, I did. Yes. Uh-huh. And there were, because, as I've told you before, the only times I ever got answers on that phone, which was by the, uh, the, the, sender, uh, the sender mine in the middle of mm-hmm. Mojave Preserve. Mm-hmm. German tourists. Always Germans, German tourists. Never Germans the same loved one. It. Uh, I mean, it was beloved around the world. People just loved calling it. When, whenever it would go out of operation for any reason, the poor phone company would get these complaining phone calls from all over the world. You've written a book called Adventures with the Mojave phone booth. Correct. Uh, and where is that book? Yeah, the plan was to have some here tonight. I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> it's being designed. It's in the hands, actually, of Professor Cardihouse, one of the main characters in the book. He's doing the book Professor design. Cardihouse. That's good. He's a professional. He is very good. He's um, a professor. I, I've, I've heard you have a posse, as we used to say in the I do, 1990s. Somewhere. And the there were some other people at the 1890s. costume party with me. Uh... Daniel These are Ponyboy. the characters who accompanied are. you on the on the early visits to I'm the to Mojave phone booth. Yeah, plenty of room for everyone. Inter- in, introduce them, if you will, Doc. This is Ponyboy Girly Toolshed. Ask her about that at your peril. This is Daniel Paul, who most people call Daniel, but for some reason I always call by his first and last name. Welcome, welcome to the program. Um, yeah, you can take turns on the... Unfortunately, we only have one phone, and it's an old booth. Hello. Um, Daniel, can you... What, what was your, your, your first physical encounter with the Mojave phone booth? Our first physical encounter was Godfrey drove us there in the middle of the night. It was very dark. We drove down a really long, dark road, a dirt road with rocks, uh, Joshua trees and some other desert items and there was a phone booth 45 minutes deep off the SEMA exit off the 15 freeway that's the location 45 minutes and that phone booth was there for therefore 
we went to it. No. There you go. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> All right. Now we need to hear. Okay. I, I cannot even remember the nickname you've just been uh, uh, introduced as. Pony boy, girly tool shed. Pony boy, girly tool shed. Welcome to the program, Pony, etc. Thank et you very much. And you. you also uh, accompanied these ne'er do wells on the first trip. Yes. Yes, I was there. What was it like? What, what, what made it magic? I think the fact that Doc was so obsessed with calling the phone that it became almost something that we all kind of attached to, this idea that this phone would ring in the middle of nowhere and maybe someday someone might answer it and then one day someone did. And the fact that he started having a conversation with the woman from the cinder mine there and uh, it just started this whole routine and we enjoyed the adventure of, of road tripping out there and we, it was, we never knew if we'd actually get there or not. And we were always going out there in ill-equipped vehicles. Very ill-equipped. Uh, sometimes art cars that had a tendency to, I don't know, break down, Godfrey. Um, and uh, it just became a thing that we did. And I, you know, I sent uh, Doc a number of items to bury out at the phone booth, and then he had a contest to see who could find them when they went out there. And it just, you know, it was 1997, so this connectivity was very new and odd and peculiar. And people just loved it, and we loved it. I loved it, and I just read about it and called occasionally. <laughs> Well, thank you all so much for bringing the booth and for coming up here. I hear you have some kind of historical roundabout that you're doing. Uh, yes, that's right. And it was 20 years ago. It was 20 years ago this, this month. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's the weirdest damn thing because you all, I, were fascinated by it being a phone booth in the middle of nowhere, as they said. And now the millennials are just fascinated with the idea of a phone booth at all. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's like having an Egyptian mummy up here. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about one of your most popular pieces in the Desert Oracle, which was the tale of the $50,000 jackalope. And uh, a lot of people just don't buy it. They just don't believe anybody. <laughs> By else. which part? Well, mostly the part about anyone believing you. So. Well, let me re-emphasize that these were bikers from Ohio. Uh-huh. Maybe that helps. I don't know. Um, and where where does Ohio lie on the biker IQ? Until that point, I would have had no idea, but now I feel like it's pretty low. <laughs> and you might be underselling. You might be underselling my ability to sell it. I mean. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. It's, so how did you tell this person who you worked with about the jackalope and about how she might earn $50,000 by well, capturing it? she lived at a trailer park, which is shocking. And she said that she had seen something go underneath one of the trailers. And it sounded from her description very much like it was a cat, probably. <laughs> but I said, I said, God, that sounds just like a jackalope. And she was like, a jackal what now? I was like, well, okay, a jackalope is a cross between a jack rabbit and an antelope. And if you were to capture one, I mean, there are very few, very few known in the wild now. Most of them have been caught and stuffed and displayed in roadside museums. So if you were to catch one live in the wild, 
you could probably get upwards of $50,000. Man, I just saw the dollar signs in her eyes light up. (laughs) And by the end of the day, she had that money spent. I mean, she was just going to go home and catch that thing and cash in. So she went home and she told her biker husband (laughs) about this. And he just belly laughed and couldn't believe that she had believed it. And then she got really angry. And then the next day I had to face the consequences. Doc, tell us about your next piece in the Desert Oracle, which I think got lost on the same truck as your Mojave phone books. Okay, this is really embarrassing, but they were asking me, and I couldn't remember. (laughs) You could not remember your own piece. No. What is this? I'm serious. Well, it's been a while. I I hear it's a good one, and uh, it will be out. You don't remember either. I remember enjoying it tremendously. I remember what my next one is going to be. What is your next one? My next one is going to be on the center of the earth at Felicity, California. Center of the earth. All right. Well, thank you, Doc Daniels, so much. Thank you for bringing your posse. Good luck on your uh, memory drive. And uh, don't, don't get shot in the desert. All right. Thank you so much. Doc Daniels, everybody. And now it is time for strange and unusual facts. A company called American Green has reportedly bought the entire little town of Nipton on the edge of Mojave National Preserve so that the company can pump water from the desert aquifer below and add a few drops of marijuana oil to that water so they can sell it to the tourists who are either coming or going from California or Nevada both states with uh, legal recreational marijuana as of January in California's case. Experts say the company will be mercilessly harassed in the courts until they go away. Illegal campers in the day-use-only county land preserve in the village of Joshua Tree recently left marijuana edibles scattered around their illegal firing and illegal campsite where my dog managed to consume a piece of this ground food and then had to spend 24 hours in the Yucca Valley Pet Hospital as this program will be broadcast tomorrow night in Joshua Tree. I would like to make it clear that from now on, all illegal campers in this clearly posted day-use-only area are going to symbolically pay for sending my dog to the hospital. I mean, nails in tires, rocks through windshields, tents sliced to ribbons, and then we call the sheriffs, and then we call Cal Fire and the county parks to report the scumbags. Are you coming to Joshua Tree? Well, listen, camp in a legal campsite, and if that's too tough for you, go to a motel. And if that's too tough for you, go home at night, you know? Go back to Orange County. People up there in the high desert are ticked off. And honestly, the out-of-towners don't really spend that much money up there anyway. In fact, we're going to start charging them per Instagram post. The grasshopper mouse mostly eats centipedes and scorpions. With the scorpion, it eats the stinger first. The grasshopper mouse turns scorpion venom into painkiller. Imagine if being struck by a Mojave rattlesnake made you high. 
but just imagine it. Don't try it. Leave our rattlesnakes alone, for God's sake. They have enough problems with the highways and the rat poison and the suburbs all over the desert. Joshua trees, one of the most popular plants on social media, may have come to North America as seeds carried in the bellies of migrating birds some 15,000 years ago. Or maybe not, it's a theory. What is a fact is that the giant sloth common in this area before the desert we know and love and occasionally despise today became this area. Well, the sloth ate the flowers and they spread the seeds of the Joshua tree all over what we call the Mojave today. And we know this because Joshua tree seeds have been found in the fossilized excrement of giant sloths in caves around the Mojave. Many interesting activities await the visitor to Joshua Tree National Park. A favorite activity of Graham Parsons of the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers and Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, who often traveled out to Joshua Tree together, was to take LSD and then climb up Caprock at night and then take turns sitting in an old barber's chair that they had dragged up there for the express purpose of watching UFOs without hurting their necks. Graham should have stuck to LSD. Instead, in 1973, Graham Parsons died in room number eight of the Joshua Tree Inn, right there off the highway. He had indulged in heroin, too much heroin. Regular people die from taking opiates all the time in the high desert these days, but it was seen as a romantic way for a rock star to perish in that long ago time. Today's rock stars, if there are any, are said to enjoy a carbonated water called LaCroix. We shall now quote Dr. Yeager on the subject of the antelope ground squirrel. Sprightly and restless, he is a favorite of all who know him. You are especially fortunate if this chipper little rodent takes up living quarters in the neighborhood of your desert home, for then you may watch him in all his sportive moods and know his engaging family life. He is a decent, friendly neighbor of the finest sort. Anybody who lives in the desert or visits often should have a copy of Eben Yeager's wonderful book, Desert Wildlife, always available somewhere and currently published by Stanford University Press. It has a desert kit fox on the cover. Now, it's said that Dr. Yeager, at one place, not marked on a map that we're aware of, in Nevada, a bit north of Las Vegas, had so many scorpions, so many scorpions that even Dr. Yeager, the great desert biologist, refused to sleep on the ground. And when he traveled there, he brought a full bed and he made his interns build it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Desert Oracle Radio, broadcasting across the great Mojave wilderness from Amboy to Zizek's pioneer town to Wonder Valley, even here in Palm Springs, if you park in just the right place. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher and tune in and the rest. It's a podcast of the broadcast for those sad and lonesome times when you are not in the high desert where the bighorn sheep and the antelope ground squirrels play. We will enjoy a 15-minute intermission after this, and then we will be back with more Desert Oracle Radio Live, if we live that long. Good night for now, from the voice of the desert.